your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We've been in and out of this series for several months. I've, I've not been consistent to preach through Corinthians every single week, but we are making our way through it, and today we're going to be in the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it has been a, a great study for me personally to get to go through this book and prepare these messages each week, uh, and the title of this series has been Messy Church because regardless of if it's Caruso Baptist or another church on Millville Avenue or anywhere else in this world, there are going to be messy things at times because people are messy. Our lives are messy, and we, uh, we love one another and we care for one another, but no matter how much you love each other, sometimes you get on each other's nerves. Sometimes you butt heads, sometimes you disagree, and in those kinds of moments, we we have an opportunity to show grace and love and forgiveness and, and along the way sometimes it gets a little messy and so that's what we've been talking about was this church in Corinth went through a lot of messes and Paul was trying to help them uh, get things sort of cleaned up by obedience and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and so what I've been doing each week when we preach through this series is I've been starting off the sermon by reading from what we know as a paraphrase. So you may have a King James Bible or an ESV or a New King James or one of the others, but this is more of a, of a translation where one person would just kind of put it in modern language. So I don't recommend these for like your regular Bible or what you study from, but it does help us to just get a plain reading of the text. So I've been reading our opening verses each week that we do this from the Living Bible. So you don't have to stand this morning, but I am going to read this to us uh, for verses 24 through 27 of 1 Corinthians 9. So it writes there, In a race, everyone runs... But only one person gets first prize. So run your race to win. To win the contest, you must deny yourselves many things that would keep you from doing your best. An athlete goes, goes to all this trouble just to win a blue ribbon or a silver cup. But we do it for a heavenly reward that never disappears. So I run straight to the goal with the purpose in every step. I fight to win. I'm not just shadow boxing or playing around. Like an athlete, I punish, I buffet my body, treating it roughly, training it to do what it should, not what it wants to. Otherwise, I fear that after enlisting others for the race, I myself might be declared unfit and ordered to stand aside. Father, we come to you today asking you to speak to us through your word. Open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to be obedient to what the Spirit has for us, Lord. May we leave here changed and challenged to be better servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And most of all, Lord, if someone here today does not yet know him, that today would be the day where they hear his voice and they come to him in faith, turning from their sins and trusting him. Lord, we give you all the praise for what we've already felt here today. Your spirit uh, moving among us has been a joy, and I pray that that continues throughout the service. In Jesus' name, amen. So my title this morning is Enemy, and you'll notice how I spelled that with the word M-E at the end. That is intentional because sometimes we like to blame other people, we like to blame the world, we like to blame the devil, and while all of those things certainly can influence us in negative ways, I would say that the greatest enemy we face is the person in the mirror, that we are our own worst enemies many times. And so whenever we encounter sin, difficulties, whatever it might be, the place where we need to start the examination is inside of our own hearts. Not to say that it's always us, but that's where the investigation needs to begin because oftentimes we are the enemy of our walk with the Lord. So I want to start off 
the sermon by putting up on the screen Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, which we would call the fruits of the Spirit. And as we look at these, the fruit of the Spirit is, this is from the ESV, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, if we were to look at that list and just put it on the screen and, and, and investigate and examine everything on there, we would probably say that, you know, there is a need for all of those things, love and joy, peace, gentleness, all that stuff. But as I looked at that list, and you may know those nine fruits very well, maybe you've memorized that scripture, but I think it's the last one in verse 23 that really gets kind of forgotten. The King James, I believe, uses the word temperance. That's a great word. We don't use it much. Temperance or self-control. Of all the fruits of the Spirit, that may be the one that we focus on the least. And yet I believe that it is one of, not to say that any one is more important than another, but it is such a critical thing for us to understand and to note how important it is. That word self-control, have you ever told someone, maybe you've told your kids this, if they're having a meltdown or they're just throwing, you know, this temper tantrum or someone's life is just spiraling out of control and they can't even think logically and you say, just get a grip. Have you ever said that? That's literally, I mean, in a way, that's literally what this Greek word means in our English language, like get a hold of things. Right? But what's important, and we'll talk about this, is Paul is not saying, the Scriptures are not saying, it's up to us to control ourselves. If we could do that, we wouldn't get into the mess we were in. Matter of fact, if we could control our lusts and our passions, we wouldn't really need a Savior. Right? Because it, this is something, this is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that we naturally are going to be able to produce in ourselves. I looked up the word temperance just to see what the dictionary had to say about it. So this is the dictionary definition. And here's what it says of temperance. Habitual moderation in regard to the natural appetites and passions. So notice that it's a habitual, it's an ongoing moderation to the natural appetites and passions. So it's restraining ourselves. It's getting a grip. It's not letting ourselves get too carried away with things that are not good or are harmful to us. Restrained or moderate indulgence. I thought about how different that is from our culture today. How, 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 there are hardly any boundaries anymore on anything. Matter of fact, it's almost a challenge to, to push the goal line a little bit further. Let's see what we can get away with. Let's see what we can do. Let's stretch these laws. Let's do away with these laws so that we can fulfill anything and everything that comes into our minds and our hearts. Isn't that what we see in society today? And, and, and that's what makes it so challenging for us as believers to live in our world today is as much as you don't want to admit it, the culture influences you. And it influences me. And we are in this world but not of this world and, and we, we walk in the spirit but we're still in the flesh at times too and this battle goes on non-stop for us right and that's why we need the spirit to produce in us these fruits so that we can live counterculturally to the world you're gonna look so different you're going to be talked about and you're going to be shunned and you're going to lose friends and you're going to lose 
many other things along the way if you truly decide to live differently. But your satisfaction and your peace will come from knowing that you're in the will of God. And I can promise you that fitting in with people just because you do the things that they want you to do is no way to live life. There are so many people today that don't live the life that they have been called to live because they're trying to please everybody else. I'm, I'm, I'll admit it. I'm a recovering people pleaser. Anyone else? That's an exhausting life because you are constantly worrying about making sure everyone else is happy while you're dying along the way. It's exhausting. And I've, I've heard it said and I've said it and it's easier said than done, but we perform for an audience of one. There's one person that we need to please as believers, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. As beautiful as these ladies sung this morning, their goal, I know, was to honor Christ. Whether you guys stood and clapped or just sat with your arms folded and hated every moment of it, their desire was to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what matters. And that's what certainly we all have desires. When I stand up here and preach, I want the message to resonate. I want it to have an effect on you all. But at the end of the day, I've tried to get better about learning that once I preach this message, my work is done. I've done what God has asked me to do. How you respond is out of my control. Obviously, I desire to see you challenged and changed, but I can't do that. Only God can. And I have to step out in faith and trust that He will. His Word never returns void. And so, as Paul starts talking about these uh, things that we mentioned in our scriptures today in this self-control, we've looked at several chapters where Paul has been answering questions. And I've told you, we don't have the questions that was asked by the church. We just have Paul's answers. So we're trying to deduce what the questions were as Paul gives answers. In chapter 7, he talked a lot about marriage and, and giving up rights for the spouse. Each other, is not, our bodies aren't our own. We give uh, and, and please the spouse. And then in chapter 8, we looked at the fact that there was some weaker Christians, some weaker Christians who were struggling with the fact that there was meat that had been offered to idols, and, and they thought it was a sin if they ate this meat. And other Christians said, what are you worried about? We're forgiven. Those idols don't mean anything. We can eat anything we want to. And Paul says, listen, I will never eat meat again rather than make my brother or sister stumble. That is great self-control. That is great restraint. That is willing to give up your own rights for someone else. That's what he's been talking about. And he kind of continues that into the ninth chapter. Uh, I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to preach this whole chapter, but I do want you to see in the opening verses, he starts to defend his position as an apostle and a preacher of the gospel. And he says to them, if you, if you go on down to uh, verse 14, because I've heard this said over the years, not, not much anymore, but in a lot of the old-time uh, mountain churches or whatever you want to call it, like there is a stigma that a preacher should not get any money. Like preachers should not be paid anything by the church. They should do everything for the Lord and not be taken care of. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.14, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. He's saying, and he talks about the fact that you don't muzzle the oxen, but you let him eat the grain when he's plowing. And his whole point is like, if someone has given their life to the cause of the gospel, there is nothing wrong with the church providing for them and taking care of them in, in, their, in their duties, in their... It's not a job, it's a calling, but 
people still have to live, and if the church so chooses to provide for that man in his walk, there's nothing wrong with that. But Paul says in the next verse there, in verse 15, he says, I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so too for me. For it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. He says, listen, I could have received money from doing this, but I don't want anybody to use that against me or make it a stumbling block. He's like, so I'm a tent maker by trade, and I'll take care of myself by working as a tent maker. You don't have to give me any money. I'll just provide for myself rather than cause a stumbling block. What a sacrifice that was for him to say that I'm willing to set aside anything so as to not bring shame upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So all these chapters have been speaking about self-control and self-denial and serving other people above ourselves. And that brings us to what we're going to look at today. He says one more thing in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I, that I might win the more. Most English Bible translations shy away from using the correct word in these translations. So I'm not sure if any translates it this way. He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all. I think probably all your translations use that word servant. The right word is slave. It's literally a doulos, a slave. He's not just saying I serve. He's saying I've given up all my rights. We shy away from English Bible translation, shy away from that word because of the connotations of slavery in our culture. That's not biblical types of slavery. It's more of an indentured servitude. But nonetheless, the right word is a slave. Paul gave up everything so that he might... What was the reason that he did that? That he might win the more. Win people to Jesus Christ. That was Paul's goal. So with that being said, let's look at our verses today. And I want you to see a few things. Uh, and we'll start off with verse 24 again. He says, from, from my translation, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. I heard a few weeks ago when the Super Bowl, after the Super Bowl was over, that it was the most watched Super Bowl in history. 123.4 million people watched the Super Bowl. And I thought about that. What a massive amount of people, spectators, consumers, on the sidelines watching these men play a game. But here's the thing I thought about too. Out of the 123.4 million people that watched the Super Bowl, 53 men, which is the size of an active NFL roster, 53 men won a prize. 123.4 million people watched. 53 won something. Paul says in verse 24, run the race. He didn't say watch other people run their race. He said, you run your race. There's 2.2, an estimated 2.2 billion Christians in the world today. You might number yourself among that 2.2 billion. But I want to ask yourself, and I want to ask to the church, of that 2.2 billion, with you being one, do you plan to win a prize? Are you laying up for yourself treasures in heaven? Is there going to be something waiting for you? I'm not speaking about salvation this morning. I'm talking about when you cross that finish line and enter into glory, are there any treasures waiting for you? Or have you sat on the sideline 
and watched others run while your life is passing by. Warren Wearsby said, It is much easier to be a spectator than a participant, except when the event is over and they give out the prizes. Then we will wish we had gotten out of the stands and joined the team, and it isn't too late to start running. I love that. It's never too late to start running. Paul said, Forgetting what is behind, I press on. Don't worry about what you did yesterday, last week, last month. Good or bad, it's gone. Can't get it back. But you can run today. You can run from this point forward. John Piper said, God has not saved you to sit in the stands. God has not saved you to lie on the track. God has not saved you to sit on the edge of the pool with your feet in the water. God has saved you to spend yourself for the glory of His Son. Run your race. Not what anyone else is doing. Everyone runs, Paul says, but only one can win the prize. Now, that doesn't mean that out of all the Christians that are running, only one is going to get a prize. But in the sense, he's saying, as we all run, only those that complete their race and run with a purpose are going to be rewarded. It's not just enough to be part of the team. You've got to run this race. And like I told you, the greatest enemy that we face is us in this race. The thing that keeps us from going forward most of the time is me and you. We make excuses. We find reasons. We allow ourselves to get caught up in other things. And before you know it, running this race is not a priority. It may not even be on the list for you if you're being honest. And so we have got to look at ourselves and say, okay, well, if I'm being challenged today by the Word of God to run my race, and if I'm honest, I haven't been running very well, or maybe not at all, what can I do? I hope you'll at least admit to say, I'm not running like I need to be, but I want to do better. What can I do? That's what I want to show you today. So look with me. We're going to give you three things this morning. Number one, write this down. If you're taking notes, there's a concentrated pursuit. There is a concentrated pursuit. Look what Paul says in verse 25. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate, there's that word, is self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. This concentrated pursuit, what is this concentration on? What is the thing that he is pursuing? He says those that compete do so to win a prize. He has his eyes on the finish line. He has his eyes on obtaining a reward. He's not just running for exercise. He's running to win. I know Brendan runs many cross-country races, and I have no doubt that while winning may not be the most important thing, I would venture to say that when you go into it, your mindset is, I'm going to win this thing. I, I plan to win, right? I've never talked to someone who's serious in athletics to say, well, I don't think there's any hope for me winning, but here I go anyway. Like, you go in, you're already defeated if you go into it with that kind of mindset. Like, when I played basketball, there were people much better than me, but in my mind, I was the best guy on the court. You've got to go into it with that mentality or you're already defeated. The mental side of this contest is often where we lose things. Many of you are gifted in so many ways, but you have decided in your mind that I can't do this. I don't have time to do this. I'm too scared to do this. Over and over and over with the excuses and you won't even step out from the, finish or from the starting line because you don't have the focus yet that needs to be. Paul says, I want to finish well. He said, everybody that competes, he says in that word, I want you to see, let me find it here. Everyone who competes, verse 25, that word literally is where we get our word 
agonizes from. It's not just going out and playing a game, guys. He says, this is a competition. This is a, there's agony involved in this thing. I'm going to do everything I can to prepare my body to win this race. If, if I'm going to keep using Brendan as my example this morning. Brendan, thank you for being my example this morning. If Brendan never spent any time running, if he sat on the couch and watched movies and ate popcorn, he would be out of shape like me. But Brendan gets out there. I've seen him before. I've been driving down the road and see him running up Eaton Road before. He wasn't in a race at that time, but he was keeping his body, training his body so that when the races come, he was ready. He was prepared. And that takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of commitment. You don't want to get up early. You don't want to get out when it's cold and it's dark or you're tired and get out there and run. Like for some people, that just sounds horrible to you to even think about running. Like that's the last thing you want to do. But training your body to be in shape to be able to do those things, that's that example. But it can be with anything. You've got to do some temperance some self-control to prepare yourself. You can't indulge the flesh. And I've said it many times. If you, if you come to church on Sunday and you spent no time with the Lord through the week, I would venture to guess you probably won't get much out of this, no matter how good the service is. Because whether it's preaching, teaching, or worship, it's really just an overflow of your time spent with God through the week. It's not a switch. You don't just walk in the door and say, ooh, K. Russo, church, boom, turn the switch on. Now I'm close to God all of a sudden because I'm in the building. Listen, God's no more relevant and close in this building than he is out there. God is in all places. He's, uh, he's omnipresent, right? So there's not something magical that comes into play when you walk in here or when you sit in this sanctuary. Yes, it's the house of God. Yes, this is where we corporately worship. But you can worship God out there just as much. He's just as much present there as he is here. There's a different dynamic, no doubt. But nonetheless, I don't want you to think that just something magical takes place when you walk through the doors of this building. You spend time with God continually. You have to run that race every day. And that means prayer and Bible study and doing the things that help you in your walk outside of these walls. And so Paul says this is an agony for him. Athletes that train are competing but, but here's the thing. Remember when we looked at the fruits of the Spirit and this whole idea of self-control that, that we all need to have. It, it's not accomplished. So if you say, well, I want to be more temperate. I want to be more focused. And so our default is, I need to start trying harder. I need to really work on that. I need to make a list and stick to it. That might be good for going to the gym or dieting or a whole host of other things. But that won't work when it comes to spiritual things. It may help, but that's not, that's not going to be the key that unlocks all this. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And so self-control, it's kind of an oxymoron. Self-control is not accomplished by self. It can't be. Self-control, because what has Paul been talking about in all these chapters? What did I say? Surrender right? He's giving up his rights for others. If you want to have self-control, the way to do that is not for self to work harder. It's for self to surrender itself to the Spirit who produces those things. It's, it's when you face those choices where the Word of God and the Spirit of God is saying, go this way, and you want to go this way, it's giving up what you want to do what God wants. And that's where self-control comes into place. Because all the temptations that you face, 
all the desires and the lusts that come at you, it is in that moment you wanting those things more than God. And you've got to make a choice to say, I surrender what my flesh wants to do what God has called me to do. And as you do that, it becomes more and more of a lifestyle. It becomes more of a pattern for the way that you live. Paul says that these guys are, are agonizing to run a race. In, in, in the Greek games, this was called the Isthmian Games in Corinth, which was bigger than the Olympics for a long time. Obviously, the Olympics are more well-known, but they would have understood this. Like, there was boxing and racing and wrestling, and so Paul uses these analogies because it would have been something that that culture understood. But it wasn't a big... The, the track, they say, was about only an eighth of a mile. So this is a relatively short race. And if you think about it, so is our life. It's a relatively short race. Even if you live to 100, that's nothing in comparison to eternity. And so in this short race, physically speaking, Paul says they, they train and they train and they train to run this eighth-mile race to get this, this crown, this Stephanos, which was you've seen the olive branches weave together and they place that on their head. That thing's going to just degrade and rot away. It means nothing in the big picture of things. But he says, my concentrated pursuit for me is to run this race, not to win a Stephanos that's going to perish, but to win an eternal crown that no one can take away. Run your race with a purpose, church. Run your race with your eyes on the prize to please the Lord Jesus Christ and lay up treasures in heaven. He writes in Philippians 2.13, Paul says, for God is working in you. Giving, so now watch the process here because I don't want you to think that, well, to have self-control means I just do nothing and let God do it all. It's not um, let go and let God. There's a part of that. That starts there, right? It's a surrendering of self to God. So Philippians 2.13, God is working in you. That's the start. That's the foundation. As a Christian, God is the one that's placed the Spirit in you, and He is the one that empowers you. If you don't have that, none of this matters today. You don't, don't hear this sermon and say, well, I've got to work harder. No, you have to have a relationship with Jesus. That's got to be the starting place. If you don't have that, don't, don't jump ahead. Start there. But if you have Christ, God is and has been working in you. That's the source of everything. But then He says what? Giving who? You the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. You see, God is at work and He's the one that gives you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. But here's the thing. God is working in you. He gives you the desire and He gives you the power, but He also gives you the choice. And you have got to decide. When you surrender to God, he equips you with everything you need. There's still going to be a crosswords where you say, I want this, and God says, you need that. And if you're surrendered to the Spirit, I believe you will take his way and not your own. A lot of people are sitting on the sidelines. Not necessarily, when I'm not talking about serving and just doing things. I'm talking about living your life for Christ, for putting him first. Don't just get in your mind and say, I want you to do more things. I want you to put Christ first in your life. And then he'll show you what needs to be done. But I'm asking you, are, are, would you say that you have just been a spectator? Or are you running with a purpose? And that's my second point, verse 26. There is a certain 
purpose. There is a certain purpose. Number one was a concentrated pursuit. Now there's a certain purpose. Listen to what he says. Therefore, I run this way, not with uncertainty, but I fight, not as one who beats the air. Paul was focused on the finish line. And he wasn't just focused on the finish line. He was focused on winning. He wasn't focused on just making it to the end. He was focused on crossing ahead of everyone else. And while it's not necessarily a competition between believers, the Bible does say that we are to stir one another up to good works. And so I want to run my race, and I want to run better than anybody else. Not so that I can boast, but so that I can have treasure in heaven and please the one who has done so much for me. And I hope that's the same goal that you have. Because like I said, our life is so short. Are you making every second count? How much time, if we're honest, I've said this many times, how much time, if we're really honest, do we waste? Because everybody will say, I'm just so busy. And I, I'm not downplaying the fact that people are busy. There's no doubt about that. But if we're honest, in all of our busyness, how much time do we literally spend doing nothing? Just vegging out. I'm just going to be honest with you. Here's, here's a couple of things, just throwing them out there for numbers for you. The average American has seven hours a day of screen time. Seven hours a day of screen time. Now, you may be higher than that. You may be lower than that. But that's the average. Seven hours out of a 24-hour day, people spend in front of some type of device. All right? Here's another one. 90, this was mind-blowing to me. Just listen to this. Let this sink in. 92 billion, with a B, 92 billion hours were watched on Netflix in the first half of 2023. I'm going I'm to read that again and just think about what I just said. 92 billion hours watched on Netflix in the first half, six months of 2023, that is 11,000 years of television in six months. And yet somehow we are too busy to serve God. All of us, I'm preaching to myself, can find time to do the things we want to do. We will make time and priorities. If you read for six minutes a day, six minutes a day, for six months, you would read the whole New Testament. That's all it takes. I mean, everybody reads at different pace, so that may not be exactly accurate. But six minutes a day for six months, you would read the whole New Testament. Yet 11% of professing Christians say they read the Bible daily. 11%. Out of a poll taken of lost people, not Christians, lost people, 29% of lost people polled said a Christian had ever shared the gospel with them. So out of 100 people, only 29 of them said anybody that's a believer has ever told them about Jesus and how to be saved. That's a terrible number. That's a shameful number. Because how many Christians should be sharing? What percentage should that be? 100%. 30% is a F minus, minus, minus. Right? That's way down tiff. I don't know what the grading scale is, but that's pretty low. I wasn't a good student, and I never got a 29. I can tell you that. That's way down there. Right? So here's the deal, guys. We recognize that there is issues in our lives when it comes to serving God. Do you see the finish line? 
We're all of us as Christians, it's, it, whether you're Church of God, Baptist, Presbyterian, the common denominator that I hear so much now is the Lord's coming soon. Everybody's talking about the Lord coming soon, and I agree that He's coming soon, but if you see the finish line, if you see how close we are, then why aren't you running as hard as you can? Like when they do the relay race in the Olympics, I love watching the 4x100 four, four relay because they have the anchor guy. The last guy is the guy that's really going to bring it home. And, man, when they pass that baton to that anchor guy, it's a whole other gear. That guy, I'll never forget when Usain Bolt ran the anchor of the 4x100 four, four, for Jamaica. And, man, he just shifted into another gear and, I mean, set world records. But that's the thing. When you see how close the finish line is, guys, how can we not run as hard as possible? How can we not pour out everything that we have? Because there's a goal to this thing. What was Paul's goal? To win souls. You all, there's a basket full of people down here that you love that are lost. How hard are you running to see them come to Christ? I know you can't save them. But are you spending time every day in prayer? Are you intentionally sharing Jesus with them, inviting them to church, doing everything possible to make sure that they don't die lost or that they're not left behind should the rapture of the church take place? What are we doing? He says, I don't shadow box. You see that in that verse? He says, I fight not as one who just simply is beating the air. He's intentional about this thing. And that brings us to the final thing that he says, number three. There's a cautious preparation. There's a cautious preparation. What do I mean there? Verse 27, he says, I discipline my body. I buffet my body. I told Ronnie I was going to give him a hard time because he, he, he claims that he picked at his eye and give himself a black eye there. Now, there's, there's different stories going around. I want to say gossip, but there's rumors that he got out of line a little bit. But no, I'm just kidding. But I told him, it's funny that that happened. Not funny for his sake, but funny that the sermon talks about that. Because when Paul says, I discipline my body, that word in the Greek means literally, I punch myself. Now, he's not condoning that you go around today and say, I, I'm a failure pastor said to, to beat myself up because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. But that's the idea. He is literally saying that he's buffeting his body because the flesh is so out of control and he wants to be in control. He wants to be surrendered. And so he's punching figuratively. He's punching himself in the eye. But who is Paul fighting in this thing? Himself. That's why I say we are the enemy it's us. Paul is in a war against, yes, the enemy against the world, but primarily it's himself that he's wrestling with. And he says, I discipline my body for what purpose? He says, I want to bring it into some subjection. Dulagoo is the word there, and it means, again, slavery. He says, I want to beat up my body to the point where I make it a slave to Christ, that there is no will in my flesh outside of serving God. That's a high goal to reach. But that's what Paul said he was trying to do. And John MacArthur said, most people, including many Christians, are instead slaves to their bodies. Think about that. Paul is trying to make him, his body a slave to Christ. How many believers are slaves to their bodies? Anything that the flesh wants, you take and indulge it. You allow, there, is no, there is no real boundary for you. That's not how we're called to live. He goes on to say, their bodies tell their minds what to do. Their bodies decide when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, when to sleep, and get up, and so on. He says an athlete cannot allow that. 
He follows the training rules, not his body. He runs when he would rather be resting. He eats a balanced meal when he would rather have a chocolate sundae. He goes to bed when he would rather stay up. And he gets up early to train when he would rather stay in bed. An athlete leads his body. He does not follow it. It is his slave, not the other way around. And the scariest thing, there's a lot of scary passages in the Bible, I think. One of them is when Jesus says in Matthew 7, when people say, Lord, I did this and I did that, and he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. That's a scary thing to think about. It really is. And there are others. It talks about in Hebrews 12 about Esau, and it says that you know, he sold his birthright, and later that he sought repentance with tears and he couldn't find it. That's a scary verse to me. But this one is equally scary. And remember, Paul's not talking about salvation in this chapter at all. He's talking about running a race and winning a prize. But notice what he said at the end of verse 27. I discipline my body. I punch it and bring it into subjection. Make it my slave. Why? Because he says, when I preach to others, I don't want myself to be disqualified. What an awful thing it would be for you to spend your life telling others about Jesus and how they can serve Him and follow Him and have joy in the Lord and you never have any of that for yourself. That you told everybody else about Christ, but you never really lived what you believed you were saying. That's what Paul's saying. He said, I don't want to get to the end of my race and see other people with their prizes and find out that I didn't do anything like I talked about doing. It was all just lip service. It was all just games. I didn't really live it out. He says that when I go out there and I preach to others. Guess what that word is? There you go. I heard some of you say it. When I caruso to others, when I proclaim truth, when I give them the, the news of victory about what the gospel can do, I'm telling everybody else, but I myself am disqualified because I never really lived it out. I never really put it into practice for my own life. That's why the enemy is us. You can know everything about the Bible. You can teach and preach and do all those things for other people and struggle to live it out and apply it for yourself. And I want to ask you today, are you running your race? Parents sometimes focus so much on their kids that they forget about their own race. And the greatest way that you can impact your kids is by example. Your example. Because I can tell you that teaching them the right things is so valuable. But if you teach them one thing and live another, all you're teaching is for naught. Because people will listen to your life more than your lips. I can promise you that. Make sure that they both line up together. Romans 8.13, it was part of our confession verse. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Not you might, you could, you will die. But if by the Spirit, notice that, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's not saying you work for your salvation. He's saying the evidence is that the old man is crucified with Christ and that you are living differently. That doesn't mean you get it right all the time. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that there's a change, and it's evident, and you can see it, and other people can see it. Is that true of you today? There was a story, Phyllis, you can come for the invitation. There was a story of a little Christian church at the foothills of the Swiss Alps, and one of the members there was a mountain climber, and he died climbing that mountain. He fell to his death. And they buried him in the little cemetery in the churchyard underneath the foothills of the Alps. And on his tombstone, it simply put his name, 
date of birth, and the day he died, and this short little epitaph at the end. He died climbing. He died climbing. And I thought, I hope they could put that on my tombstone. That I was still going forward. That I was still pressing on. If I'm 100 years old and can barely think, if I'm out of my mind, I can barely walk, if I'm able to, I want to still be climbing. I want to still be going until God calls me home. And I hope you can say the same thing. And so here's the thing. Number one, like I said, if you don't know Christ, that's all that matters today. You have got to have that relationship with Him before anything else. You say, how do I have that relationship, Pastor? It's recognizing today that you are lost, that your sins, whatever your sins are, and you have many, as do I, those sins have separated you from God. And you have got to turn from those, say, I'm done with that. I don't want those things anymore. I want Jesus. And you come and trust Him as the sinless Son of God that died on the cross for your sins to forgive you and rose again three days later, proving forever that He is who He said He was. If you will trust that Jesus today, He will save you. But here's the scary thing. I think a lot of you have done that. But I think a lot of you have just grown to be content. You say, I'm saved. My kids are saved. We go to church. Life isn't bad. Nothing really terrible going on. I'm not living a horrible life. I'm good. And you've just shifted into neutral, and you're just coasting. You're just going along with things. You're not really making a lot of progress, but you're just kind of floating with the tide. Our van out here has been acting up. Funny. It'll run great. It starts up good. Idles good. But when you get it up to speed and you try to give it some gas, it doesn't want to go. And I think a lot of us as believers get to that place. It looks good. It runs. It'll move. But when you really try to go, it doesn't want to go. And I think for some of you, God is calling you. God is prompting you. And you're like, nah, we're good. Coasting down the hill right now, everything's fine. But you're going to get down in that valley eventually, and you're going to have to go up a mountain. And neutral won't work. And you're going to settle right in that valley. And when you're in that valley, that's when you have nowhere else to look but up. I'm trying to spare you that. Because we've all been in that valley, and it's no fun. Don't go in the valley if you can help it. Sometimes you have no choice. That's where you grow. But I'm asking you today, are you just coasting along? Is it time to say, God, I'm ready to run my race. I'm ready to get in this thing today and do what you want me to do. We're going to give this invitation and you respond. That's your opportunity to say, what do I do at an invitation? You come. You come and you pray by yourself or with someone or with me. And you get serious with God. Or maybe you just want to thank Him. Maybe you want to join the church. Whatever it is that God is dealing with you about, that's what the invitation is for. Only you can answer that. And I pray you will. Father, we come to you today asking you to move in the hearts and lives of your people, Lord, that, that you would now see that we would see the results of this message, Lord, as the seed has been planted and watered, that you would give the increase. Lord, thank you for what you've done in our midst. We give you all the praise and glory and honor for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As we stand.